1: You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello, and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives, brushed with displacement, disease, financial ruin, abandonment, bereavement. And not only have they survived, but thrived. Loss and adversity are a part of life, but an imperfect past isn't always an indicator of what's to come. But why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people? who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most.
2: In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals on how they achieved success in the face of adversity. And we'll be reflecting
1: on some of our greatest interviews to date with new thoughts and revelations. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known.
2: In this episode, we're taking a listen back to one of our favourite interviews with one of the UK's most successful rappers, Stephen Manderson, although you may know him better as Professor Green.
1: Growing up on a council estate in Clapton, East London, Professor Green went on to become a multi-platinum artist, with 3.5 million combined sales in the UK. After touring with Lily Allen, Green was signed to Virgin Records, and in 2010 he released his debut album, Alive Till I'm Dead. Over a decade later, he's collaborated with artists such as Example and Rizzle Kicks, co-hosted Lip Sync Battle UK on Channel 5, and is a patron for the charity Calm.
2: Meeting with Stephen, it was clear that the man he'd grown into was a lifetime away from his youth. But without the challenges he faced in his early years, I think he would agree he wouldn't be who we know he is today. From being raised by his grandmother on an East London council estate to living through his father's suicide, Stephen has faced numerous challenges which have led him to reevaluate his own life. What do you
1: remember from speaking with him, Alice? I think the main thing I remembered was the tattoo on his neck that said lucky because that was such an extraordinary thing to have and he, he does feel lucky he feels that he got away with it and I think that's because his mother was only 16 when she had him and his father wasn't around but he had this extraordinary granny and great grandmother and his nan was like looking after him the whole time and she was very protective and also quite pushy and had standards and I think that really helped him and he was obviously phenomenally bright and so she was always trying to get him to do his work and and although he was sort of smoking at a really young age and then dealing and then drinking, she was in the background, so I think he felt she protected him in some way. And, and that sense of being lucky is what we get with a lot of our interviewees, when instead of feeling that their lives were dreadful at the beginning and they have these appalling starts, they feel somehow someone was helping them. It's almost as if there was a presence that propelled them forward.
2: And his grandmother used to come to some of his early concerts, he said, and she described his rap as that talking music. I don't think she quite got it, but he loved that she used to come and she was so supportive. Even though they had very little money, she was working two jobs a lot of the time when he was growing up. So she had quite a tough time as well, but he felt all the time that she was there for him. He had a really turbulent time at school and he said that he remembered, he used to get these stomachaches and it was because he thought that if he went to school and he left his grandmother and his great-grandmother, they might not be there when he got back in the way that his parents weren't there anymore. And he talks a lot about the sort of combination of the mental, the psychological and the physical and that the two are very entwined.
3: I was quite a bright kid. My only problem throughout all of my school reports was uh, was attendance. I was anxious sometimes, um, and I've started to get the feeling again that I recognise as the I-don't-want-to-go-to-school feeling, Then, then i have got a belly ache feeling. <laughs> right. I'm getting it again in my adulthood. But I, I understand it right and I know what it is so I know it will pass and I know I can get beyond it and I also know it's on the other side of it because if my nan ever did have the time to drag me to school kicking and screaming by the time I got there I was so happy to be there it was just the getting there um and I it was it was always down to that and I got a bellyache it was my anxiety Despite
1: being raised by his nan, who he has huge admiration for, it feels like Stephen was always yearning for a connection with his mum and dad. And yet they kept him just out of reach. They were never really around and he couldn't form a proper loving relationship with them. And Stephen recalls that last interaction he had with his dad, when he had a huge argument with him and finally stood up for himself because his father just kept letting him down. And that was the last time that he ever saw him. And then six years later, he discovers that his father's committed suicide, and he has to go to the morgue and he has to identify his father's body.
3: Yeah, it was horrible. I, I can't. I haven't seen the man in six years, and he's just cold, and you know, swollen, and bruised, and he looks a lot older than I remember as well. He started to lose his hair. Thankfully, I haven't. <laughs> um, but he just was. It was the his um, his widow. And some of the children, or maybe all of the children were there. Um, I say children, they weren't young mm. at this point. Um, and no one would go in. And was the manager, or the owner actually, of the shop that he used to manage, he used to manage an oddson awesome sod shop called This and That, um, was about to walk in to ID the body because no one else could do it. And I was just like, are you mad? Like, do you like have no respect? Is your family. Mm. Um, I, and I walked in and, and did it.
2: You can tell from speaking with Stephen that he's a very emotionally intelligent man. It's no wonder he's a mental health ambassador. But it's fascinating how many sliding door moments he's encountered in his life, which he himself admits could have taken him down a completely different road in life. From dealing drugs, being stabbed in the neck, a shock car crash, surgery complications and more, Stephen Manderson, Professor Green, is a symbol of resilience
3: people always ask me what kept me going and I don't know if it was like just self-belief that was buried beneath it all Mm. or if it was just blind stupidity or if it was a bit of both Um, but I think the one thing that I have in common with a lot of my my friends who come from similarly disadvantaged backgrounds is that we all carry on and at the end of the day no matter what happens if you're still alive I don't think there's anything really left to do but carry on
1: In this episode of What I Wish I'd Known, musician Professor Green tells us his story of how hardship in his younger years shaped him into the man he is today. It was early 2021 when
2: we spoke to Stephen, and he reflects on success and music.
3: Do you know what? Accolades are not something that I strive for. That's never been the goal for me, uh, much in the same way that I never wanted to be famous. I wanted to be successful, and then I found that there was another side to that. You know, all I ever wanted to do was to be able to to continue to make music and to, to do that really, to be able to support myself while doing that, I had to become successful as a musician. Um, and that took a long time. I didn't start making music until I was 18, so quite late. A lot of my friends had been making music from like 12 and 13. I don't think I started selling records until I was 27, 28. So it was a, a real punt. There wasn't really a plan B.
1: And for you, is the music more about expression, do you think, or about entertainment? Is it the rhythm or the lyrics?
3: I love both. You know, there's, there's songs when I, there's songs that I can recall the, the melody of and there's songs that I can recall the words of. There's songs that I can recall both. You know, you, you spoke about Bob Dylan. He's not the best singer in the world, but people connect with his songs. You know, things that I think there's a I think striving for perfection can get you to a certain place. But I also think it can be your undoing. The beauty in music is the imperfections, that's what's most natural. Like when you listen to Jay-Z songs, there's times when he sounds almost off, but he uses the take because it felt right. I've had times when I've recorded a demo on a not very great microphone um, and then have gone to the studio to re-record it, and have not been able to recreate what that first demo vocal felt like. And it's not just been demo As everyone has agreed, and we've just ended up using the scratch vocal because it was a better take, and yeah. it, it feels different.
2: So there is a meaning for, uh, to it for you, because there was that story recently where Elton John's lyricist said, oh, it's absolutely pointless looking for meaning in any of his songs, but actually <laughs> yours, they, they're full of meaning, they're full of emotion, and there's a real truth to them. Is that important to
3: you? Yeah, but I also like, so I come from a, a background of battle rap as well, and freestyling, which is is more, I guess, on the entertainment side of things. It's where you're, you know, that's where you get to, to kind of exercise your ability and show off a little bit <laughs> um, and be a bit lippy and naughty <laughs> um, and cheeky, which I still enjoy being. I, I do feel, however, that that explanation kills art. Like I think so. One of my favorite, I I, I did a, a show, I can't remember the name of, but it was about number one singles, and I was asked what my favorite number one song was, and I said, well, The Verve, The Drugs Don't Work. First of all, they were shocked because they didn't believe that that was a number one single. Um, they fact-checked it. It was. Um, and then they asked me why, and I said, well, because he's never had to explain it. But people don't realise that that song... Because you make a... When you hear a song, one, it can be a place and time, but two, it can mean something to you because you relate to something in it. Mm. A lot of people will relate to that song because of addiction, but the song had nothing to do with addiction. His dad was dying of cancer and had got to a place where the drugs had stopped working. Mm. When you hear the song in that context, it, 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 I mean that's you know that really makes me feel it. something, mm. but it really does change it. Mm. Now I think it's beautiful that that song can mean what it needs to to whoever is listening mm. to it. You know, without that explanation, it can mean something different. Mm. Um, and I think that's the beautiful thing about music: if you don't explain everything, a song can be whatever it needs to be for the person listening to it. And I kind of feel that way about music: like I don't listen to my old music much. Um, although weirdly, I heard my first hit single on the radio today. They were doing a competition on the, ra- <laughs> they were doing a competition on the radio station I listened to um, where they play like snippets of songs and trailers of movies and you have to guess the year that it came out. And then they played my first single, I Need You Tonight. I was like, whoa, I haven't <laughs> had that in ages. Did you try and um, win
1: the competition?
3: <laughs> I did message the radio presenter because <laughs> I knew her. Um, i to pull over and send her a text and then she'd come on air laughing, <laughs> go, ahead, Professor Green has got this right. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> um... But I, I think there's something to be said for like for me. when I As soon as I finish a song, it, it, it isn't mine anymore.
2: It's the listeners. It's the listeners mm-hmm. and it's
3: done. And it, you have to get to that point. I've seen many a talented artist never become what they could have been because they are scared of judgment. And you are going to be judged when you put a song out. So for better or worse, they are going to judge you. And I think that's why it's always important to fall on your own sword. I've never made a record that someone else has told me to make. I've never been pushed down a path or encouraged to take a direction that hasn't felt right for me people always say you know there's you know i have a really macho persona that's been put on me i am not macho in the you know archetypal sense that's mm. not me i was a very sensitive child i'm a very sensitive human that hasn't changed and there's a lot of bravado in rap which there is but i enjoy that it's it's fun to to, to kind of play and be a little bit cocky. You should have a belief in what you're doing. You know, when I was talking about freestyling and when you're using punchlines and you know, creating similes and metaphors and using wordplay, that's a place to exercise ability, and you can show off a little bit. But there's always been feeling and emotion and sensitivity and honesty in the music, but and you know, and, and by the musicians that I've loved. You know, they always put themselves, what they think, what they thought, what they observed, into their music. And because I was growing up in Clapton, in Hackney, when it wasn't full of people with beards and New Balance trainers (laughs) and £3.50 coffees which I must admit I do enjoy, so I'm a bit torn when it comes to gentrification. <laughs> yeah, Murder Mile is now all
2: sourdough bakeries, it's, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it's like middle <laughs> class mile. It's, um, but don't get me wrong, I, this is, but well, people say that, but the thing is with it, if you're growing up in Hackney and you're poor, it's still very much the same, except you have your face pushed up against the window even more because mm. you feel excluded, I would imagine, from a lot of the new shops that have popped up. But, so your
2: your name, Professor Green. It's yes. sort of Park pluto, Park Quentin Tarantino, isn't it? But actually, it's not <laughs> any of those things, is <laughs> it? Where her- does it come from?
3: But entirely herbal. Um, <laughs> I used to get asked that a lot in the beginning when I was I'd be on like breakfast television, um, and <laughs> it used to catch me off guard, and I'd be like. Uh, I used to have a very keen interest in horticulture, um, was always my get out. And then you'd see the face of the host because they'd take a second. You can see they'd like look to the left as their brain was ticking. And then they'd go, right, we'll move on from that. Um, yeah, I I used to, yeah, I, I had a keen interest more in uh, weeds than plants um, when I was younger. And that was where the name came from. I got given it when I was 18 uh, by happened? a friend. Someone said something um, about, cult- we were talking about cultivation and he um he said something that was wrong and I corrected him quite sternly. And he went, what do you think you are? Some kind of Professor. Who are you? Professor Green. <laughs> and then everyone just went, it was like a look around the room and everyone went, Professor Green. And that was it. And it it just it's, it it stuck.
2: Wrong,
3: yeah. <laughs> do you know what? I mean, it, it's weird. The older I get, the more it's like, does this still work? Can I still, you know, am I going to have to drop, like Chipmunk dropped the monk on his name? I'm like, am I going to have to drop the... <laughs> Professor, part of it. Excuse me. I'm, I'm like, You know. I'm. I'm what? What am I gonna? I, does this? But it, it. I don't know. It continues to, to work.
1: Can you just describe for us where you came from in Hackney and what it was like?
3: Yeah. Um. Vibrant. Really, really vibrant. Really noisy. Um. Really, really full of culture and diversity. A lot of concrete. Not very green. Um. <laughs> at least not. You're not <laughs> yeah, in that way. Not anymore. in that way. Yeah. It's weird. You know. As a kid, it felt huge. You know, like everywhere does. Um, as I started to grow up, I realized that it was actually quite a small part of the world. Um, and I think a lot of people that grow up there don't, unfortunately, get to get outside of that world. And that becomes their world. And then that becomes them. You know, you've got kids now that will fight over estates where their parents don't even own their, their flats. They're fighting over something they don't even own because of a lack of purpose. They don't have any identity beyond where they're from. You know, and people who are middle to upper class don't talk about their ends or the area they come from. They talk about what school they went to, you know, and then beyond that, they start to become more defined by their careers. Sadly, I think a lot of people that grow up where I grew up or and who still now are growing up where I grew up become defined by where they're from. Um, and I think where you're from is important, but it shouldn't define you to the point where it's all you have.
2: And your mum was only 16 when you were born. A baby. Wasn't she? And I, the, I think that. More nurse, than twice her age now. Yeah, when I think amazing. about it, I'm like. But the nurses in the hospital handed you straight to your grandmother, you yes. said, didn't you? I yeah. mean, what was she like then? What was that my
3: like? My nan did tell me that, by the way. That's yeah. not one of my own memories. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I ended up in her arms for the most part of my childhood, you know, hers and my great grandmother's, Nanny Edie. My nan, I mean, what an incredibly strong woman. a point where she should have been starting a new life for herself you know her kids had all left home she had three children two boys and one girl my mum, and she ends up looking after her grand not only her grandson but her her mother as well you know what 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 more example could i need of how to be a hard worker Mm -hmm. you know she put grit in me and she i'm not saying she was always in a good mood um she was working three jobs a day and then coming home to having to do everything that she did as a parent and also a carer but i think when people grow up in single parent households the the single parent be it, uh you know whether they're maternal or paternal they have to make a decision based upon whether they are present or they're at work quite often which is not an easy decision to make i wouldn't imagine if they're not present then that child misses out on a hell of a lot Um, if they don't have a good support network and that's when you find family in other places sometimes places that are less than ideal which exposes you to things you shouldn't possibly ever be exposed to let alone how early and with me I think I was extremely fortunate because I never lost out on any parenting because I had my great-grandmother there and I also had one of my uncles um he was disabled he had terrible epilepsy which they couldn't treat and control at that point so he lived at home so i was really really fortunate you know and i think
2: but your mum left when you were one didn't she she
3: was the foot so there was six of us there was six of us in a um in a three-bedroom flat in clapton uh, number one member house north water state and the first person to leave um was was my mum yeah when i was a year old and she left to sort herself out but never you know i mean there was a, a battle for my custody Uh, when I was three, which thankfully my nan won. And this is, I mean, this sounds like a horrible thing to say, and I don't mean this with any malice or spite. You can see my face. Um, But I'm quite happy that I'm not my father or mother's son because I don't think they were old enough or equipped enough to give me the upbringing that would have seen me achieve what I have and enabled me to, to do all that I do now. I think I was extremely lucky to be brought up with an older set of values. Do
1: you have any real memories of your parents growing up at all?
3: Yeah. Um, I mean, my mum was there m- more consistently than my dad, but there was no no real maternal bond, sadly. She tried and she tried and she tried. You know, even later on in life, we, we've we tried to to find some closeness. And, um, look, I, again, you know, no malice. I, I, I don't have any resentment towards her, but I, I, we don't have a relationship that... You know, you would expect a mother and son to have, not least of all, the firstborn. But she was incredibly young, and she had her own own stuff to deal with. And whether or not she's dealt with that, I, I don't really know. Um, but I, I do have memories of of both of them, and I've got, I've got lovely memories of both of them. My dad, I always just remember. I mean, the memories of when he wasn't around were a lot worse. They were a lot harder, and at times it was difficult because when he would show up, you know, it would be after a year and a half, and I, I would be so angry at him, but I'd be so scared to tell him. So I, I stifled, you know, I suppressed a mm-hmm. lot because I was scared that if I told him he'd disappear again because part of me wondered if it was my fault all, which is a crazy thing mm-hmm. to wonder. Did you um, never
1: blame him? Was it always your
3: fault? When I was a kid, I mean, I was angry at him, but the first time that I the first time that I actually spoke to him in first time I spoke to him and was ever ever kind of honest and because I'd held it back for so long and this was true of me for for quite a a large portion of my my younger life actually I I would hold things in so when I finally did let it out you know if someone did something wrong the first time I wouldn't say anything because I was nervous and, and quite anxious but then when I did eventually respond after they've done the same thing the eighth time I'd respond disproportionately and this would be the last time I would talk to my dad, and he got back in touch. I said I'd never put my neck on the line again. I'd never take that step forward so he didn't have that power, you know. He didn't have the ability to hurt me again. And I did, because I missed him. And the thing is, right, he was a terrible, terrible father, but he was a gorgeous, gorgeous man. He was a lovely bloke. He was charming. He was funny. He was sweet. He was kind. He was caring. Um, and we had a conversation, and we were meant to meet up the day after Boxing Day. I was in Wolverhampton. I think I remember. I was. I remember clearly. I was with my girlfriend and Tia, We were sat at Burger King. we I'd just gone to a shop to buy a computer game in the sales or something. Um, with money that I got for Christmas, and uh, I said, "So, what's happening tomorrow? Are you coming to me?" And he said, "Oh, well, Jackie and the kids are desperate to see you." And Jackie was his wife, and the the kids he was referring to were his stepchildren. And it was the first time. I went, what? And he went, what do you mean? What? I went, Jackie and the kids. I went, I'm i mean, not coming to play happy families. Mm. You and I need to sit down as adults and discuss everything that's come before now to try and see if we can salvage some sort of relationship. And he started to go, well, oh, well and I just went, you know what? If I ever see you again, I'm going to knock you out. And I put the phone down on him. And that would be the last time that we ever spoke. And everyone always goes, oh, you must really regret that. (laughs) Why? He does so much to hurt me in my life. And I understand that he had his own problems, but never am I going to guilt myself over being angry at someone that I deserve to be that angry towards. And if I saw him, I wouldn't have knocked him out. I'd have cried my eyes out and hugged him. I missed him. I miss him now. I will forever miss him. But I was entitled to be that angry. There was no way I was ever going to guilt myself over saying that, you know. It was something stupid that was said in a moment of anger. And it it wasn't, you know, I wasn't even actually angry. And this is, you know, I, I've got this theory that anger is adult fear, you know. I can't be seen to be upset. What I was was upset, but that came out as anger. And mm. I think that's the same with, uh, you know, I think women have a better handle on this. I think with men, we tend to feel like we have to put a face on things. And that's why we all, you know, we're, we're more reactive. Um, and I got woken up by my nan on a Wednesday morning and uh, she just blurted out, Stephen, your dad's dead, he's hung himself.
2: Oh my God.
3: Yeah. I, I, yeah, it, it had happened the, the night before. I, I never knew he, he had any problems. Um, I, I had no idea. It completely came out of the blue, um, and I was in a rage. And I remember punching the wall. I was angry. I was sad. I was confused. I was yeah. every. I just went through a whole spectrum of emotions um, very quickly. I remember leaving the house and going to my friends, and and I kind of I, I wanted to know how, how he. Firstly, my dad is not... He was not a violent person at all. He was so passive. He hung himself. That's an incredible... It's quite common amongst men. They, you know, I think the the statistic you know, it was... It, I don't know if it still is, but three out of four suicide attempts are female and three out of four, for lack of a better term, successful suicides are male. And it's because men tend to use much more violent methods. Um, and I wanted to know how he for all of the times that he didn't show courage, you know, for every time that he didn't have enough courage to come and pick up his son. Mm. Well, not just his son, his sons, you know. I have two I have two half-brothers that I don't know that were also his kids that he never looked after. The only kids he actually ever looked after were his stepchildren, you know. He didn't have the courage to repair any of those relationships. How did he have the courage to take his own life? And I'm not saying that it's it's noble. I'm not, you know, for him that was obviously the only way he felt he could take control he had got to a place where he couldn't tolerate how he felt anymore which is terrible but what I, I i grew to understand really quickly is the only way i'd ever understand how he was able to do what he'd done is if i was in that position and i'll never be in that position ever
1: it must have really just triggered all those feelings of abandonment well, all, and all and of a sudden i can't I, all
3: of a sudden this this is selfish but yeah, i'm also entitled to feel this and I, I what he took away from me from us the opportunity to sit down and have a beer, to go to the pub and play pool. You know, just to have those conversations that you would have as an adult. I lost my great-grandmother when I was 13. She lived through two world wars. Do you know how much I would love to be able to talk to her now? There was Mm. a a whole bank of information there that I didn't access because I was too young to ask the right questions. And because no one in my family... no, Honestly, I can't tell you how frustrating it is. No one in my family blimmin talks. No one no one, <laughs> apart from you, well, apart from me, mm-hmm. and that's starting to change things right, so now I'm starting to ask my name questions, and she doesn't always enjoy it, but it means that I'm learning things that will stay with me that I'll be able to pass on to my children when I have them, you know, and I recently, my uncle it took me until I was about thirty to be able to say, "I love you to him, you know, and my friends the same thing now I make a really strong point of it, you know, and we hug, we kiss each other on the cheek, it's like we, why are we we, we from such a young age we're forced into being boys that have to grow up into men and the idea of what a man is is so rigid Mm. you know and it causes so many problems
1: and you had to identify the body at the morgue was that a Mm -hmm. moment you think when you actually i mean you were forced to grow up really then
3: i just cried my eyes out kissed him and said you silly idiot i actually used a different word but i won't say that one Mm. um it it was horrible I, i can't i I haven't seen the man in six years, and he's just cold and you know swollen and bruised, and he looks a lot older than I remember as well. He started to lose his hair. Thankfully, I haven't. <laughs> uh, but he just it. It was the his um, his widow and some of the children, or maybe all of the children were there. Um, I say children; they weren't young mm. at this point, point. Um, and no one would go in. And it was the manager or the owner, actually, of the shop that he used to manage. He used to manage an, an odds and sods shop called This and That. Um, was about to walk in to ID the body because no one else could do it, and I was just like, "Are you mad? Like, do you like have no respect? Is your family?" Mm. Um, I, and I walked in and and did it. I think. Do you know what pushed me to do that as well? Was when my great grandmother passed, I had the opportunity to see her to say goodbye. Um, and I walked in the room and I ran back out crying So I couldn't bear to see her like that. I was only 13. Mm. Um, and I just couldn't bear to see her like that. So I think there was definitely. A, and I always regret that. I wish I'd have spent those moments with her, even though she had long left her body. You know, she wasn't. You know, that was. You know, mm. she wasn't. Do you there think anymore.
2: your dad. Had your dad been depressed? Had that. Had there
3: been a long yeah. build-up, um, I never really was aware of of mental health. It was never a conversation I'd had anything about. The only time I ever heard, I, mean, I never heard mental health. I heard mental. He's mental. She's mental. It was a derogatory term. It was though it was never used in this. You know, in the, in a conversation around mental health, it was never anything that was discussed. I mean, we don't even discuss the good parts of my family's past, so like, there's no way we'd get into a discussion about mental health. Um, I never really understood it until later on in life when I had to really take a long, hard look at my own. Um, I suffered anxiety from... I was literally as young as I can remember nan nan I got a belly ache and I just didn't have the language the the tools or the understanding to to know that that was anxiety because I had surgery on my stomach when I was six weeks old every time it was straight to the doctors and then eventually from the doctors to the hospital and then it was a camera down my neck or the other way and all these investigations looking for something that was a psychological problem mm-hmm. that was presenting as something physical and knowing more about I was diagnosed with IBS really young knowing more about IBS uh, it, it It can be preceded by um, trauma, or it can, you know, or you can be diagnosed with IBS and then be much more likely to suffer with anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a huge link between the gut and the brain, um, which hasn't been understood for a long time. Um, It's relatively new science, Mm -hmm. um, but people are beginning to understand just what impact your gut health has on your mental health and overall well being. And it's funny because we've got sayings like, you are what you eat. So we've known this, you know, yeah. it's not actually anything new. We've had an understanding, you know, yeah. gut feeling, bad taste in your mouth, all of these sayings that we've, we've had.
2: You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools
1: with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this.
2: Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester
1: and Alice Thompson, and our guest on this episode, Professor Green. What were the happiest moments of your childhood? Have you got any memories of? Yeah,
3: like jumping onto. Life? Yeah, just running out of. Our, cause I used to. So when I was first, when I was really young, I'd sleep in uh, in a bed in my nan's room. Um, I'd run out and jump into. It was my great grandmother that had the um, the chair that used to fold out into her bed. But she used to have this blue blanket and I'd run in and jump underneath it before she was even wake, awake and wake her up every morning. Um, and it was so early. I don't know if you remember the holding screen for the cart- before the cartoons come on, which was really eerie oh, in the hindsight. The girl with the long hair. The girl, but she had yeah. like a, a weird little um, like puppet dolly you, or yeah. puppet. Yeah. And it just played that... <laughs> It's really eerie in hindsight. Um, <laughs> so while that was on, you know, she would read. She would read to me, and then until she taught me to read, and then we'd read. Uh, you know, it would be words each, and then paragraphs each, oh, and then pages each. I can't remember. But that's where your remember. love of language from. probably yeah. yeah. Later on, it was a lot of Roald Dahl and um, oh, what was the horror series? I remember buying um, the Green Mask, Stephen King. I think it came in seven parts from Safeway, um, but that was when I was shopping with my nan. I can remember that. Um, but I told you my recall was terrible before we started this conversation, <laughs> didn't I? You know, so because my nan, my great-grandmother, sorry, Nanny he made learning so much fun, I, I, it didn't stress me out when I got to school. The stressful part to me, for me was getting to school. Um, but I always, I guess, wanted to, you know, I, was, I always wanted to impress my teachers. I always wanted to get the work done. And not only that, I, I was an incredibly inquisitive child. I was quite quiet, but... I would speak if I had something to say Um, and I was always listening and I kind of I I, you know I put that into practice when I was battle rapping I would stand on stage with my back to someone who was saying all these horrible things and make out like I wasn't listening to a word of it I was listening to every single word so I could take it and throw it back at them in some way Um, but yeah I was I was quite a bright kid my only problem throughout all of my school reports was uh, was attendance.
2: And why did you not go? Well, your grandmother said at one point she thought it was because your parents weren't there. And you were you were afraid that she and your great grandmother might not be there when you got home. Do you do, think that's true?
3: Do you know what that? She said that to me really, really late on, um, and I'd never thought about I'd never thought about it like that. Mm. Uh, I can't remember to say, but it was I was anxious sometimes, and it was for me, and I still get that. I, You know, especially recently during the second lockdown, I found this one a little bit harder than the first. And I've got a lot going on, Uh, you know, uh, an insane amount at the moment. Like I'm busier than I ever have been, but it's like all the social things that I would normally do that I've lost. And that I found quite difficult. Um, And I've started to get the feeling again that I recognise as the I don't want to go to school feeling. The nan, I've got a bellyache feeling. (laughs) I'm getting it again in my adulthood. But I, I understand it. Right. And I know what it is. So I know it will pass and I know I can get beyond it. And I also know it's on the other side of it, because if my nan ever did have the time to drag me to school kicking and screaming, by the time I got there, I was so happy to be there. It was just getting there. Um And I it was it was always down to that. And I got a ache. It was my anxiety. Yeah. But, yeah, I ended up in a pupil referral unit um, and Then did get back into mainstream school, but I didn't have time to do all my coursework before my GCSEs, so I wouldn't have got the grades that I should have got. So left school again, went to college to do my GCSEs and ended up getting an apprenticeship at um, a desktop publisher's. And I was earning money and I was happier earning money. And I'd already taught myself how to use um, Quark Express, Adobe Illustrator, Adobe Photoshop, um, Adobe After Effects, Adobe Premiere. Because I used to use all these programs to facilitate uh, making skate videos and building websites to upload them to. um, Because I was an avid skater when I was a kid, which actually kept me out of a lot of trouble.
2: But you also, didn't you, you got the chance to take a scholarship exam for St Paul's, yeah. a private school. Why yeah. did you not want to do that?
3: Because I felt even at that age, I knew my place in the world. I just said, it's right. not for me. And you know what? When I was younger, there were kids. So when I used to skate, I met people from, from all sorts of backgrounds, which was great because it opened the world up to me. I also travelled with it, so it made the world a bigger place. And my nan had always taught me. Uh, Even though I think she finds it's quite difficult to practice and can feel uncomfortable sometimes in certain places around certain people. But your class is not dictated by what's in your bank or your pocket. It's in how you treat people. So I was always comfortable around everyone. Um, But when I was a kid, like I was always, I thought, you know, certain kids were like weird and they weren't weird. They were just free to express themselves. I was at a point where I couldn't wear the clothes that I would skate in on my journey from my house to the train station, I had to change when I got to Liverpool Street because otherwise I'd have become known as a skater or a grunge, which I, I couldn't have happened because that would have just made life incredibly difficult when I was playing out in my estate. Oh, I see. So, it, it you know, it wasn't cool. So I felt then that I had to be Hackney, whereas these other children who didn't, you know, who didn't have that pressure were just free and able to to you know they were more ultimately they were just more comfortable in their own skin and were able to express themselves. I so understand how, that how, now, but how do you
2: think you'd have been different if you'd ended up going to St Paul's?
3: I don't. I, I mean, if my attendance was bad going to a school where everyone was pretty much on the same playing field, um, mm. what would it have been like when I was you know mm. at a school where everyone came from families that had things far beyond what I'd ever seen, let alone had. Um, you know, it would have been, I don't think I would have been incredibly comfortable. I think I'd have been a fish out of water and I think my attendance would have been similarly bad.
2: And then you started dealing, didn't you? What happened there?
3: Um, I started to, so I used to be like, obviously where I grew up, I'm, a lot of the people that I skated with used to smoke weed, but never really knew anyone to get any decent weed off of. And because I was in Hackney and I knew people that had done that for a long time, um, it was really easy for me to get hold of. So all of a sudden I found money in my pocket, not intentionally. And I just, I had quite a big circle of friends because of everyone that I used to skate with. I knew people from Clapton to Croydon, you know, to to Ash to Woking. I knew people all over the gaff. So it was really, you know, it was kind of, and also because I wasn't selling weed in the area that I grew up in. It kind of wasn't. It was quite easy and it seemed quite harmless I didn't really it's funny right growing up I was always told that you could sell things but not take them but weed was never ever discussed as a drug it was just something that everyone did right. if you drunk all day every day like for me there were periods in my life where the first thing I did was light the spliff that I hadn't finished the night before when I woke up now if you if you drunk like that you'd be an alcoholic mm-hmm. but I think there is a problem with weed for some people in that it's it's one of maybe two drugs that makes it okay to do nothing Right. Yeah, which is useful sometimes because sometimes you do. For some people, it's a glass of wine, you know, to just to shut off. Some people are able to meditate. I'm like Zen level two. I'm not. I'm not there yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Which <laughs> is sort of weird moment, though, sort of sliding doors moment when your life could have gone in a completely different direction. Or did you think in the end? So many
3: times. So many times. And people always ask me what kept me going, and I don't know if it was like just self-belief that was buried beneath it all Mm -hmm. or if it was just blind stupidity or if it was a bit of both um but I think the one thing that I have in common with a lot of my my friends who come from similarly disadvantaged backgrounds is that we all carry on right and, and at the end of the day no matter what happens if you're still alive I don't think there's anything really left to do but carry on.
2: But you talk about um, you've got a tattoo, Lucky and your autobiography is called Lucky, but in some ways you've been incredibly unlucky. Why do you feel lucky?
3: Do you know what? That was kind of like it was a it was an ode to be. So this came after my father's passing, and for me, it was like this is an ode to me being optimistic. And then two weeks after I got the tattoo, I got stabbed in my neck. Oh my
2: goodness! I know. And um, right
3: through the lucky
2: tattoo. As yeah, well, isn't right it? through the lucky oh, tattoo.
3: Okay. And when I come round from surgery, before they would patch, me, like before they would put the the, cup, the dressing over it, um, and I saw the surgeon who put me back together. Um, I said thank you for putting the tattoo back together, and he went thank you. I mean, what for? And he went, well, I knew where everything was supposed to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought I was dead. Mm. Um, everyone did. I could see it on their faces. I just got into an argument in a club. I'm passive. Genuinely am passive. Um, and it, But the one thing I do have is that when push comes to shove, I will stand my ground. Um, and it's one of those things that I, I kind of wrestle with now. I don't think about it that much anymore. It was a long time ago. It was... Uh, Yeah, so I was twenty. I was twenty six. It was nearly eleven years. It'll be eleven years ago next year. Um, Basically, what had happened was I was accused of barging someone that I never barged. I put put an open hand on someone. I said, "Excuse me." Once he was talking to the person that would eventually stab me, Um, and I put an open hand on this guy and said, "Excuse me." And I moved past him because it was an extremely Mm -hmm. crowded club. And then I heard a noise, and I kept walking. Heard another oi turned around, and he said, "You barged my mate." And that just, yeah, that grew into something that it shouldn't have um, and it all seemed to be a a point diffused Um, and then a little while after he came up behind me and he put a broken bottle into my neck millimetres from my carotid artery so I would have bled out in four minutes had it have literally been you know a millimetre in a I don't know which direction it would have been, but it was yeah, yeah, it was the the surgeon explained to me. It was weird, right? I think they, they thought I was some sort of gang member or something because the attitude that the doctors took with me and that the police took with me because I got arrested as well, was that I'd that I deserved it almost. You know, they were so harsh with me. You know, and the way the doctor said, you know, you should be dead if it was millimeters to wherever, mm. it would have gone right through your carotid. And they were they weren't, you know, they they weren't very nice to me. Um all and, sympathetic. Yeah, like, listen, I don't want sympathy. Everyone, uh, Piers mm. Morgan tried to put it on me. I, was, I, went on, I went on Good Morning Britain to talk about my new single, which was photographs at the time with Rag and Bone, Man, and then he just took it into knife crime because it was a hot topic at that time. Right. And he just went, so you were a victim of knife crime. And I went, well, firstly, I weren't a victim, but if you want to talk about knife crime, let's talk about the institutional racism and the fact that the picture that you see when knife crime is projected on the front cover of a newspaper, be it here or in Scotland, when the majority of knife crime isn't committed by young black youth. Mm. Mm. and he just went ah oh, we'll end the conversation there um, but yeah I've never felt like a victim
1: and How did you discover music?
3: I don't know my nan used to play uh, my nan used to play Jason Donovan and Kylie Minogue and Inglebert Umperdink. Um and I think that that made me really want to find something that I enjoyed listening to because that made my ears bleed um, It was. I, I think that you know people talk about my childhood being traumatic and I think it was largely because of the music my nan used to play <laughs> <laughs> um so there was a, a roller skating rink which was called Roller City and Roller Express. I can't remember what it was at the time. Um, and there was also Lee Valley where I used to go and they played music in both places. And in one of them I heard a song by Biggie. I didn't know it was Biggie at the time. And it was the One More Chance remix featuring Faith Evans. And I was like, what's this? Found out it was Biggie and then was just obsessed.
2: Did your grandmother ever come to the any of your concerts? Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. Did she
3: like it? She um, So she used to call it, she used to go, turn that. Talking music Dan. <laughs> Turn that boom boom but she meant bass. Um <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, I'd go over to her house and she'd have Radio One Extra on and be like, Oh yeah, I like this one by example. I like this one by Retro82. <laughs> uh, what about my new one then? Nah, too much swearing. <laughs> um she she's been to many of many of my gigs.
2: But you even rapped about your father's suicide, didn't you? Why yeah. I, why did you choose to do that?
3: Um so that song. My, I got sent uh, a chorus which would eventually become Read All About It and it sounded like quite an upbeat, almost R&B record when I got it, Um, but I really like the words. Um, And my dad's widow had just sold a story to a newspaper that's not in this building (laughs) um, uh, saying she never wanted me speaking about her husband's death. Um, or speaking about her husband as if he wasn 't my oh father my before he was ever her husband, but you know whatever I hope she enjoyed the little bit of money she got for it um, and what had happened was I was asked about my dad in one interview, um, and I said that it was quite a defining moment in my life because it was you know it was it was an incredibly hard situation to mm. get over, but it 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 was it drove me it made me want better from my life, you know when that happened, I stopped smoking weed. You know, it, it didn't, I could have gone a complete opposite way. I could have ended up taking everything to numb what I felt, but I actually went, you know what, I don't want a single crutch. I want to feel everything that I have to feel so as I can get beyond this and I want better for myself. Mm. Um, so it it was a defining moment for me, and I don't think I was wrong to, to say that. So the chorus, you know, I want to sing, I want to shout, I want to scream till the words come out. So i put it in all of the papers, I'm not afraid. You can mm. read all about it. It couldn't have been, like, I guess it's kind of serendipitous, isn't it? It it just, I got that at the same time as she had sold the story. Mm. I'm really, (laughs) such a tough one, I'm not grateful because I'd do anything to have my dad back. Mm. But I am grateful for being able to make something that was never meant to be a pop song. Um, It was, you know, it's a song about suicide, much in the same way that I don't think The Verve thought The Drugs Don't Work was going to be a number one single because Mm. it was so personal. How could anyone else, you know engage with that song in that way you know mm-hmm. on such a on such a vast scale and
1: do you think it's really hard then conversely if you have a really happy childhood to be able to rap or to be able to write lyrics or because it in a way you, you don't have that absolute gut raw emotion that it's you funny if that you've had a really tough time do you
3: i think it probably would make it well the thing is you'd be you wouldn't be able to to talk about the the unhappiness or the hardships if you'd never experienced them I also think the danger in having a childhood without exposure to any sort of, and I do think there is such thing as a healthy level of stress in the same way that we put our bodies under stress when we exercise Um, I I think there is a healthy level of mental stress that we need to become robust and resilient in in all of the conversations there are about mental health, I think the word resilience goes missing Mm. a lot, it never comes up um, and I think resilience is really important. And sadly, the only way you become resilient is by going through things and coming out the other side.
2: Does it also make you more determined to succeed, do you think, to make sure you don't have to go back to the difficult times?
3: Yeah, it's weird, man. I was talking to to someone about this the other day. Um, it's like, how odd is it that we all grew up in a place that we wanted to get away from? Yeah. How crazy is that? The one thing that we want to do is get out of here. But actually, it's not the area because look at how many people want to live in Hackney now. It's a desirable <laughs> area. It's your relationship with it, mm. and it's actually your social circumstances that you want to escape. It's it's not the it's not the area. It's not the postcode. It's not the estate. It's your life. It's your it's your, your, con- it's your mm. conditions. Mm. Yeah, it's your living you conditions. You were
1: killed a second time, weren't you? When you were squashed between two cars.
3: Yep. Yeah. That
1: sounds fairly grim, I've
3: Do you know what? So that had more of a psychological effect on me than being stabbed. I grew up with people, I think I was like eight or nine, the first time someone got stabbed in my estate. And one of my friends ran and called the ambulance for him. We were young kids then. He was younger than me, the guy that ran and called the ambulance. Um, so I, I was not desensitised to that, but it had been somewhat normalised. Mm. Whereas walking outside of your house, when a car's being dropped off to you, talking to the guys in the driving seat, him being seemingly parked up, going to walk back to the driver's side was uh, on the roadside, not the pavement side, walking back into your house where you're just going to wake up the rest of your mates because they've all stayed over from a gig the night before and you got another gig to go to. And then hearing the engine and it hitting you in the back and you just about managing to get yourself up on the bonnet. So all it got caught was your left leg when it smashed into a parked car. That sent me, that sent me West to be honest with you. Um, and if I didn't get up on the bonnet it would have been my hips and pelvis and if I fell forward it would have been my shoulders and head it it, it freaked me out
2: so it's just that sense of the fragility of life i suppose well
3: it just made me really aware of my mortality again Mm. you know and then in 2017 when i had surgery and the surgery went fine but i had a really bad reaction to it um Mm. i was told that i'll be on my feet in three days um back at home and then i'll be in the gym within six weeks i was back at home in three days and then within 16 hours was back in the hospital with three very very accomplished doctors standing over me looking at me with very very concerned expressions on their face and throwing everything they could at me to try and solve the problem because they didn't know what it was Um, and again you know there is a bit where you're just like again yeah like really
1: and you work with prince harry and prince william on their mental health campaigns yeah do you think that people in all areas of life have the same sort of problems is it just about when you met people who were very very rich Did they also have mental health issues? Were they also having problems with their families? Did that surprise Uh,
3: you? My willingness to work with the Royal Family um, for Heads Together was, one, because I thought it was a brilliant idea. I I have a problem with egos in charity, which there are a lot of, um, and there are so many different charities for the same causes. Um, So Heads Together, one, it's a brilliant play on words, great title, um, and also it was one of the smartest things to do because it brought together 11 mental health charities and got them all to work together for a common goal. The other reason was because of how open they were with their mental health issues and how they were affected by grief. Another mm. thing that we don't discuss enough. But I, think, I thought their openness was commendable, especially the position they're in to actually take that responsibility, understanding the platform that they have, but then also you know, getting people like me who are worlds apart from them because they understand I can engage an audience that they can't. Um, and they're both incredibly lovely and polite people. They've, you know, they've they're both been gorgeous when I've met them. But I do think, yes, problems exist at both ends of the spectrum. You know, abandonment exists at both ends of the spectrum. You know, my dad walked out and disappeared. My mum left too, albeit she was there more consistently. But someone with money... You know, abandonment happens amongst households where people are extremely wealthy because they have kids, they're handed over to a nanny, they are sent off to boarding school and they're never parented by their parents. Mm-hmm. So I do think that the same problems exist at both ends of the spectrum. They just look different.
2: So do you now feel middle class or do you still feel very working class in your L- mind?
3: Listen, I could sit here and talk to you about pharaoh and ball paint colours, <laughs> all sorts of stuff that that sounds... What's a bit your favourite? <laughs> down pi- down pipe. Downpipe. Downpipe. <laughs> Um, told you um, <laughs> uh, but it, I, I can never This it, it's really funny right I, people say this and it's impossible for me to ever be anything other than working class because I will always have working class anxieties
2: Which? what do you mean by that
3: I always have the fit. I, I understand what it is to have much less than I have now and I don't feel secure as I am now some people were given an arm and a leg to have what I have but don't understand that you get to hear and still don't feel secure I'm not at a point in my life where things can't take a couple of turns and I end up back on my backside um, and, and that's in the back of my head driving me all of the time which is a good and a bad thing because one, it means I work hard but two, what it means is that there's been periods in my life which I can be really happy about in hindsight but at that time in my life I, I actually wasn't present enough to enjoy where I was and what was happening and that upsets me now and that's not regret, that's just like why didn't you take the time to enjoy that? Why weren't you able
2: Because you are so worried it was going to get taken away. Because I was
3: worried it was going to get taken away. You know, that's always... And again, it's urgency. It's that problem that I've had since I was a kid. That's what I mean about the first lessons we learn. I think they are what cause us the most trauma because they dictate your response and the way you respond to anything throughout your life unless you start unpicking them. And it's incredibly difficult. And, you know, even once you start to unpick it and you start to make progress, something can happen that you didn't foresee and it undoes all the good work. And that's why, you know... for all the conversations I have and I said to you before we started I talk a good game but I am a work in progress I you know putting things into practice saying things is one saying something is one thing putting it into practice is something completely different and you know I still have many a struggle.
2: So how much do you think the struggles you had in your early life kind of drove you on do you think that is almost part of where your success has come from?
3: Yeah I think there's a lot of people in in especially my genre of music, but in the arts as an entirety, actually, like I think there's a lot of people in the arts who have had traumas in their life, which have driven them. Um, And I think it it does, it makes you want to work harder and achieve more, especially when you feel like you have to for a place in the world, when you feel like you have to, if you have everything, you know, handed to you, then how do you achieve that drive? You know, it it might make for a, a more consistent life, And my thing now is I don't want to be, and this is from a conversation with my therapist, is like not wanting life to be more linear but not getting attached to all the ups and downs. So being able to enjoy the highs and suffer the lows but remain relatively consistent in myself as opposed to going up and down.
1: And what, actually, is there there any song at all or line that just sums you up, do you think, or anything that epitomises what you really feel?
3: Do you know what? Wow. Wow. I've never been asked that question. Um I haven't put it in a song yet, but I have a line that says <laughs> I know everything about nothing and nothing about anything. Um don't know if that sums me up. I can tell you what my one of my favorite songs is and it's it a lot of people would probably call it a guilty pleasure, but um it was quite coming of age for me and even you know till this day it has it has quite great meaning to me and I I love it. Um but Green Day time of your life. And I think the sentiment of that, I hope you had the time of your life, you know? And I, you know, when I'm, wherever I am, when, you know, during the last moments of mine, I hope I have.
2: You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel
1: Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest on this episode, Professor Green. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young, or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen